Hello and welcome to Time for the Soul. My name is Sharon Kugler and I'm the Yale University Chaplain and we are thrilled today to have as our guest Peter Crumlish. Peter is the Executive Director and General Secretary of Dwight Hall at Yale. Dwight Hall at Yale is the university's public service and social justice center and I um, have a great deal of affection for the center and was uh, privileged to be a board member for, I think, eight years. Um, when, and uh, a lot of that was when, when I had the chance to meet Peter and work with him. And I've always been uh, very moved by your story, Peter, and um, has have felt uh, honored to work with you on various projects over the years. Your life has been about doing and I just say that just to leave it. It's been about doing. Yes, it's about doing justice, and it's been about empowering people to do the same. And this entire season of Time for the Soul has been about call and what keeps us going in that call. And that's what I want to open up with you is tell me a little bit about your call. Um, well, thank you. Um, so I think where I first go is to the call that I responded to for um, ordination that I ended up uh, resisting in the end. Um, I was um, parenting baby twins uh, as a full-time parent uh, in Maine and um, sort of watching them kind of like a shepherd, watching them crawling in the grass and not having much to do. And I had just given up this position that I really enjoyed in New York, um, involved in city government and community organizing and community engagement around parks and public spaces. And suddenly having all that um, external identity kind of markers stripped away, like I had no title, I had no office, I had no gatekeeper, you know, nobody was calling me, <laughs> no one's asking, you know. My only job was just watching over this flock of two babies, and um, it was very emptying. Um, and I, 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 I rolled with it. I really embraced it, and um, I thought about what it meant to be stripped of all that, emptied of all that, and how terrible in a way that I had had all these external. Um, markers, yeah. and that what is what? Who am I really if I'm none of those things? And I think that's quite typical for people opening up to a call, where they have to realize that there's something inside that has to be more meaningful than what the external world is telling you you should care about. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that also opened up question, which eventually led to possibly pursuing ordination in the Episcopal Church. Um, which I won't say that I went into kind of kicking and screaming, but it was like a series of doors that would open up. Well, well, I guess I'll go through that. And then another door, oh, I guess I'll go through that. And and I did it, I think, in a faithful way, but really like not, not like storming through the doors. They're like, okay, I guess there's another door, another door. And each step of the way, I was surrounded by people who were helping me in that process. And... Um, and I was learning more. And so it seemed to, be, seemed to be important that I do it, that I continue doing it. And eventually that led to um, postulancy and divinity school, which brought me here with my family. And um, early on at 
divinity school, I realized that I, whether or not I had a call to the priesthood, I really didn't want to be a priest. <laughs> um, and that was a hard thing to admit, particularly because all the language around call in that context is is pretty profound. And, and, and in my case, it was not bringing joy. It was bringing, it was duty and responsibility and, and sort of almost fatalistic, like God's calling me, you know. And mm-hmm. think about all the times that you're told the Jonah story, how like, like running away from a call to the ends of the earth and like you, you just can't escape. You end up in the belly of a whale. You still can't escape, you know. And um, my wife very wisely said, well, you know, why don't you just stick with it? Um, this was hard for us as a family with kids that I was not working and I was full-time student, but she was like, no, stick with it and see. You know, you, you don't have to. You can do other things. But And it was in the second year that I realized that um, that I wasn't prepared to be a priest and that I wasn't um, even – I don't think I would have been good if it was not something that I felt joy with, that it was just duty and um, and that – Eventually, what I realized was that a call can take on many different forms, and that I think I was being—I had been drawn to one that was clearly defined. You know, it had a title, it had a uniform, you know, it had its, its own mm-hmm. tax code, mm-hmm. um, and there was probably something attractive about that to me. It was that there was like external, again, the external affirmation, identity, status, that kind of stuff. And that um, what I had learned through discernment was to, to try to develop some sort of ability to recognize things without relying on those external markers. Um, and that was very scary because then if it's not that, what is it? It's some undefined thing. You have to, you have to find it. Um, so that's what I think about with call. And when I talk with students, I really encourage them to not worry so much about where they're headed as much as what can you learn about the process that gets you better and better at recognizing what you should be doing or what you feel, what brings you joy. So this may be taking an unexpected turn, but something you said, I have to, I have to tease it out a little bit because something just jumped into my mind, and that was you as a young father. And it felt to me when you were describing that, being outside with your twins, that you were ordained in that moment in a particular way. And I have been able, I mean, I've certainly witnessed you as a professional person, but I have witnessed you as a, as a father and a husband, uh, and that also seems like a sacred walk. And I don't know if you care to talk about that a bit. I, it's definitely not something I intended to ask you about, but something that hit me when you said that, that there was a kind of ordination that happened valuing that call and vocation as well. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, becoming a father for me was this... Um, Amazing, um, amazing responsibility and gift. Um, but I, as I'm thinking about it now, I realize that 
it actually started earlier than that. It started with um, asking Sarah, mm -hmm. you know, to marry. And um, I'm getting teary now. <laughs> um, I think that was something that, that was the sort of point at which my solo journey and my sort of like hero journey changed and became about, not that, not about me coming second, but that it wasn't only about me. It wasn't, it wasn't this, you know, my personal movie and I was going through the world and it was all, I was the storyline. Um, and then, and that what can come from that kind of commitment to saying, I'm going to actually, um, I'm going to somehow kind of like balance my needs and my responsibility to another and, and, and trust that is, can, can be done. And that's obviously something that's, you know, takes a lot of work to figure out how to do it in a, in a, uh, in a balanced and kind of humane way. Um, and then luckily I think we passed that test and we were qualified to do that with kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that is, you know, what you said before, the emptying out. Um, it makes room for the other thing. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that's not inconsistent with what I know of your life's work, which has been, I mean, you've always struck me as somebody who's not, hey, look at me and everything I'm doing, but hey, look at us and what we're trying to do and be. Where do you find your energy to keep at that? Um. At the end of the semester, it's hard <laughs> yeah, to, to summon yeah. a sense of energy. Um, I think it's through uh, other people being in relationship. I was thinking about I, – I often say this, but, you know, particularly in the context of Yale where you're rewarded for your product, um, the work that we do, the service and advocacy and community engagement um, – is a means to an end. It's not the end. We always think like we achieved some sort of product, some project, social change. We did it. We alleviated this ill or we built this thing. Uh, and we think that's the end. And the work that we do with others is sort of the means to that, to accomplishing that product. Um, and it actually, for me, is the other way around. It's that the product, the issue, the concern, the need that's being addressed is the means to the end, which is being in relation, being in relation. So being in relation with other people, being in relation with environment. Um, and that's where the energy comes from, is being in relation. And I think that's why we do what we do. Yeah, there's so much power to that. And it's also uh, can be very gnarly, you know, and um, I, I think you're right, hitting on the, you know, what, places like Yale look for in terms of results um, so that things can be measured. And this work rarely can be. I mean, it certainly can't be measured in real time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one thing gets solved, but there's hundreds of other challenges right behind one thing. You know, Dwight Hall, the model of Dwight Hall is a, is a place that is very student-driven in terms of what is going to capture people's passions. Um, and also, you know, reading the signs of the times to be biblical, but that's definitely something I've witnessed there over the years. Uh, it does open you up to 
uh, a lot of mystery. You know, you never quite know um, how the year is going to unfold. We're recording this at the end of fall semester in 2022 in what is a time that we'd like to say it's past or at least starting to see the end of the pandemic, although I'm not quite sure that we're there. Um, what it, I, I don't want to be too, I don't know, commonplace in this question, because I think everybody's getting that question of what did you learn about yourself and with the pandemic and all of the challenges. But I'm more curious about what's informing your thinking uh, about running a program such as Dwight Hall throughout a time like that. And not only the pandemic, but really turbulent times around social justice and, and racial inequity and real heartache and heartbreak in different communities. What are you sort of reflecting on and, and thinking about when it comes to that? Well, one thing I've thought a lot about recently is um, I was born in 1968, so I was born in one of the most turbulent years of the 20th century. And, um, and it was past, you know, everything. I was a child of the 70s and the 80s. And um, the Berlin Wall fell my senior year of college. I had nothing to do with it. Um, <laughs> and <clears throat> I graduated and I went out the world. I traveled abroad, lived overseas for a lot of my 20s. And it just seemed like, hey, you know, we 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 won. You know, it's, it's great. It's it's all it's all good from here on in. And uh, and then now working on a campus that has seen things that feel very much like what I know over the '60s from you know from history. Um, I've I realized that that was a really really naive um, and privileged kind of perspective because actually. I mean, even in, in the 90s, we know that there were terrible things going on. There was genocide in, you know, two continents in that decade. Um, so I think one of the lessons is um, there's always challenge there, everywhere. Even when you're the most comfortable, there's somebody somewhere in the world who's suffering. And so that, in that sense, the work never, never ends. Um, but also I think, um, that can be a really, uh, generative lesson that not like, oh, you know, the poor will always be with us or, but that, um, there's always an opportunity to be of service to other people and, be, and, and have that, that, that relationship. Um, I also have to admit, I, I think a lot about, how difficult our current world seems. And in some ways, I think we've made it so much more complicated, especially with social media and things like that. And that that's, if I could roll that back, <laughs> mm -hmm. I would definitely do that. But we, we need to figure out how to live together because we've just, we're doing it really badly. Sadly, yes. Uh, and, and that brings me to my last question. I, um, 
as you know, I teach a class on chaplaincy up at the Divinity School, and one of my favorite essays I have the class write in the course of the semester is really the call essay, the, you know, why this, what is this? And a prompt that I use is something that Sam Sly, the late Sam Sly, uh, who was a beloved figure and part of the university church and chaplaincy for many years and beloved in New Haven and beyond, um, came to my class one day and he said to the students, what's that higher thing? What, why are you doing this? What's the higher thing for you? And it's always stuck with me, and I circle back to that when I feel like I'm getting lost. What's that higher thing for you that keeps you going? Um, I wish I had a simple, pithy answer for that because it's I don't I don't even know if I know. <laughs> That's okay too. Um, I I can't I can answer it in a different way maybe, which is that. Um, One of the things that Yale um, can make very difficult for people, particularly young people, but actually for everybody around the whole enterprise, um, is that because it, it, it rewards achievement, um, and obviously this is not only Yale, this is life, um, it, it can make it hard for you to not see things in terms of I'll, I'll just, you know, run this race and then I'll go and then the next one, the next one, the next one, and get to a point where you don't realize why you're doing it. Um, and you wake up maybe at some point and you're, I'm a doctor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How did this happen? You know? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think for me, I don't know if I would, would say higher in my case, because I think maybe that would be making it a little too grandiose. But I do think about what um, makes me feel fully alive and what is deadening. Mm -hmm. And if you can recognize that, sort of like that game we used to play, like warmer, yes. hotter, colder. Yeah. You, know, you can't always choose what those things are, but um, if you can figure out how to recognize when you're fully animated and when you're not, um, that, that can be a way of navigating. And I said I wanted to share something that's really fascinating thing I experienced. When I lived in New York City the last time, um, after I returned from Peace Corps with my wife, uh, we lived in Washington Heights, and the subway there was so far down below that you had to take an elevator. And um, there was one elevator operator named Bruce Renfro, who uh, decorated his elevator and he um, had like hanging plants mm -hmm. and uh, he played jazz and he would put now playing, you know, the jewel case up on. And um, he just created this really nice environment in a steel box, you know, down in the rocky you know, bowels of Manhattan. And you'd see all these people come off at rush hour, come off the train and just with their terrible, you know, tired New York faces and go into the elevator. And they'd all say, Bruce, hey, pretty. And they'd all smile and they'd listen. And for like maybe it was 30 seconds up to the surface, everyone was like, <sighs> And um, the fact that I know the name of the guy who drove the elevator in the subway, and to this day I remember, says a lot. And what I realized is that from him, what I realized is that 
wherever you are in life, and I know this can sound Pollyanna, like sure, there are terrible places in life and despair, but it is possible, I think, to try to create an environment where you feel alive, and by extension, everybody who's in that environment also does. So that may be another way. It's, maybe that's not higher. In fact, it was <laughs> it was the opposite. It was going mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. to the subway. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that is a way to to find what your purpose and meaning is. Oh, thank you for that. That's perfect, and I can picture it. And yes, that is the higher thing going down. <laughs> and the corollary to that is that um, the subway authorities made him take down all the posters and the plant and everything like that, and they basically ruined it. And it was some bogus thing like, oh, it's a fire hazard. Mm-hmm. It's like, so that's the other way you can live your life? Mm-hmm. You can be one of those people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So don't, don't be the, don't be the, the subway that's authority. That's lowering the higher thing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Peter, thank you so much for spending time with me today on Time for the Soul. Thank you. Time for the Soul is produced by Ryan McAvoy, created by Sharon Kugler, Maytal Satiel, and Sean Mignon. Our music is by J.P. Durvin. This has been a production of the Yale Broadcast Studio.